think one of the things that's very challenging about Christmas or the Christmas season, challenging a little bit about the Christmas story, um, is in fact the Christmas story. Uh, the Christmas story, when it relates to the birth of Jesus, there's, there's a lot of miraculous things that happen to it. There's a lot of amazing things. And sometimes there's so much amazing and angels and all of that that sometimes it's hard for people to believe it. Almost unbelievable. And I would say that there's a lot of people outside of church, if you were to talk to them, they'd be like, ah, it seems like a stretch. Sometimes people look at the story and they're like, I think you kind of had to make up a little bit of a myth around the birth of Jesus, maybe give them a little like street cred. Um, a little bit of a publicity stunt with this whole miraculous birth business. Before we jump into the birth business a little bit more, I, there's a concept that I think it's critical for us to understand, at least and as I approach it. Um, I tend to think that if somebody is able to, as Jesus did, predict his death and also predict his resurrection, and then both of those things happen, I'm less concerned about how they got here if they're able to predict their death and their own resurrection, because the whole resurrection is the part that matters more than anything. The Christmas story is huge, but my faith and your faith ultimately shouldn't hinge on the story around Jesus' birth. Our faith hinges around the resurrection of Jesus. And as we look at this birth story of Jesus, as we look at the Christmas story, I think we have to take a look at the greater context of the story, the bigger picture of it. Because ultimately, we realize that the birth of Jesus leads to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And oftentimes, we start to wonder, like, well, why did it have to go down that way? Why did the story have to be that way? I mean, why is the, why is the basic plot of the story, why is it that a baby has to be born so that he can die a gruesome death? I mean, I haven't written a lot of stories in my life, but it's like, God, what are you thinking? Like, that's kind of a weird way for that to happen. And, and so that begins to create this question, like, why Christmas? Why does Christmas happen the way that it do, does? Which leads us to another question that's even more important and the question of this series, which is, who needs Christmas? I mean, why did it go this way, God? And, and so who needs Christmas? And the first question begins to be answered when we look at this and begin to say the idea that the Christmas story moves from unbelievable to believable because of the very amazing or remarkable backstory to it. There's this unbelievable narrative. If you were to look in the book of Luke and to look in the book of Matthew and to read the story, it's very unbelievable. I mean, some parts of it you're like, wow, how did that even happen? But if we can start to look at the backstory, if we can start to look at the whole story leading up to it, then the unbelievable story starts to just become this remarkable story. Because the story doesn't just begin with a young couple trying to figure out how they got pregnant. It actually begins with a young couple that's worried that they're never going to get pregnant. The story doesn't just begin with a young couple trying to figure out, where are we going to have this baby? It actually begins with a couple, a very old couple, that's confident they're never going to have a baby. The backstory makes the story incredibly remarkable. Because the story doesn't just begin with an angel showing up announcing that Jesus is going to be born. The story actually begins thousands of years later with God showing up and promising in the book of Genesis that a baby will be born. And it's not just any promise that shows up in Genesis. It's, it's an unbelievable, impossible promise that shows up in Genesis. And the promise that is made in Genesis is given to a person and in a context that this promise is really hard to understand. I mean, really, the promise that God is about to make almost makes no sense in the context of the culture that's happening. The promise shows up about 2,000 years before Jesus is even born. 
Our best estimate is the promise probably occurred around 2090 or 2090. 2,090 years before Jesus even comes, in the book of Genesis, we begin to read this promise that comes. And if you're new to church, or maybe you've been out of church for a while, or maybe you're like, I'm not sure about the whole Bible. As we talk about Genesis, what I want you to think and realize is that the book of Genesis, as the Jews referred to it, they called it Genesis, and now we've adopted that. That was 3,000, that book is 3,000 years old. And the book of Genesis tells us how the nation of Israel began. It gives us the backstory for how it all happened. And so 3,000 years ago, they started to write this down. And then meticulously over the years, they copied it and passed it down. And for years and years and years, they just passed it down. And eventually, the book of Genesis became Jewish literature. And then after it was Jewish liter literature for a while, it became Jewish scripture. And then after a while, we started to put together what we know as the New Testament. And then all of this backstory was added to it, and eventually we have what we know as the Bible. So the story of Genesis is truly just this ancient document, this ancient Jewish document that we know as Genesis. And within that story, we find this extraordinary, almost unbelievable, almost impossible promise that God gives to a gentleman by the name of Abram. Ultimately, his name gets changed to Abraham. But within this promise that God gives to Abram, it's how Christmas begins. It's, on your, it's in your message notes. It's on the screen. This is the beginning of the Christmas story. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we're not really sure why God chose Abram. We're not sure why God chose Abram any more than we're sure of why God chose Mary and why God chose Joseph. Like, we don't, why? And really what God is asking Abram to do at this moment, super dangerous. Like, we hear this and we're like, okay, go to another country. But at this time, all of your safety, all of your security in ancient times all revolved around staying close to your clan, staying close to your tribe, staying close to your family, being near your relatives. And so this request to move, to go away, is extraordinarily dangerous. This request that is being made of, Moses, of Abram, at this moment, super unsettling. Abram is being asked to leave everything that he knows. He's being asked to leave everything that's comfortable in his life. And God says, if you're willing to do this extremely dangerous thing, this thing that's super uncomfortable, I'll make you a promise. Abram, if you're willing to do this, then I will make you into a great nation. I will make you famous. I will make you a blessing to the whole world. Now, at this time, Abram is about 75 years old. At this moment, he has no children, none whatsoever. And I'm thinking, he's thinking, great nation? He's like, God, I don't need to be a great nation. I'd be happy if I could be a great grandpa. Like, I'll take that. He's like, God, I'm, I'm 75. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to live. A great nation. How, famous? God, you're asking me to move away from the people that I know. There's a really good chance I'm going to be forgotten. Chances are really good I'm not going to know anybody. Nobody's even going to know I existed. All of these thoughts have to be going through his mind as he hears this incredible request and amazing promise. Because in the context of this moment, in these ancient times, this request, this, this doesn't make any sense. 
Because at this time, the world is extraordinarily violent. And if you read through the Old Testament, and as I read through the Old Testament, there's times where we read it, and we read about lots of violence and a lot of bloodshed, and we're like, what in the world is going on? Because at this particular time, nobody was in the habit of blessing other people. Families didn't bless other families. Typically, families took from other families. It was survival of the fittest. And God is saying, listen, I'm going to make you a blessing And through you, you are going to bless other people. And when people bless you, I'll bless them. And when people curse you, I'll curse them. And ultimately, God is saying, listen, Abram, I am going to be a part of your story. I'm going to make your story happen. And then, Abram, through you, I'm going to be a part of the people that follow you. I'm going to be part of their story. And your children's story, I'm going to be a part of that story. And your children's children's story, I'm going to be a part of that story. And God is saying, I'm going to be a part of your story and nothing's going to stop it. This thing that I'm promising you, all of it's going to happen in every single people group, regardless of their language, regardless of where they live. All people are ultimately going to be blessed through you. Every single person on earth, Abram, will ultimately and eventually be impacted because of who you are. Every person on the planet in some way will be touched indirectly through your life. Through you, Abram, this will happen. And again, the strange thing in this culture, at this time when this whole promise is made, again, nations didn't bless nations. Groups didn't bless other groups. Ultimately, nations would conquer nations. Groups would conquer, they would enslave, they would plunder, they would go in and they would take, not give. Tribes didn't bless tribes. Clans didn't bless clans. This promise to us, we're like, okay, it makes, it makes absolutely no sense in this culture. At the moment where this is happening, it, it's beyond what Abram should be able to think of, beyond what he should be able to grasp. And Genesis tells us that as the plan is rolled out to Abram, as he hears this, he chooses to believe the unbelievable. And that's the very moment of an unlikely beginning. See, it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened. Abraham, he's 75 years old. His wife is about the same age. And God comes and gives them this promise. And they have no kids. And it doesn't seem possible. And it doesn't seem likely. It seems like it's going to take the unthinkable. But Abram, in that moment, decides to believe the promise. And if you happen to grow up in church, or if you happen to be Jewish, or you happen to know Jewish tradition, or maybe you're familiar with the Old Testament, then you, you, then you know that eventually Abraham and Sarah, they eventually have a son, and his name is Isaac. And then Isaac grows up, and he has a son, and his son is named Jacob. And actually, Isaac has two sons. His first son, his oldest son, is named Esau, and his second son is named Jacob. So Esau should have had the lead spot in this story. But Jacob was kind of sneaky and steals his brother's position. I mean, just so you know, if you read through the Old Testament, there is so much family dysfunction. There is so much chaos. In fact, you should read this part of the story. You should read this part of the Bible because you will feel so much better about your children. (laughs) You'll look at your grandchildren, you'll be like, they're messed up, but they're not that messed up. You could read this part of the story and, and, and you look at your parents and you're like, well, at least my parents aren't like those parents. You might even think about your own adolescence and be like, oh, okay, God can still work. Because this unbelievable story has Jacob going in and stealing what was his older brother's. 
And because he steals what should have been Esau's, now Jacob becomes the focus of the family line. And it's fun to poke fun at Jacob, but, but Grandpa Abraham actually wasn't that much better. One time, Grandpa Abraham and his wife Sarah, they're going into Egypt, and as they're, as they're heading to, close to Egypt, Sarah is apparently hot because Abraham's like, Pharaoh's going to want to steal her. Pharaoh's going to want to steal Sarah and bring, him, bring her into his harem. And so Abraham says to Sarah, hey, let's just lie. Let's just tell Pharaoh, let's tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. Which basically means he's still going to take you into his harem, but he won't kill me. Hey, that's a heroic guy. <laughs> right? This is, this is the guy that God has just said, you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. Dysfunction. Chaos. How is this going to work? So then we go back to Jacob. Jacob ends up having 12 sons of his own. More dysfunction because 10 of those sons, 10 of those brothers, don't like their other bro brother by the name of Joseph. And one time Joseph comes out to check on him to see how things are going. And the, 12, the 10 brothers are like, oh, we don't like him very much. So they throw him in a well. And as he's sitting in the well, they start to think, should we kill him or should we sell him? Should we kill him or should we sell him? And again, if you're a parent and you've got kids that aren't getting along... They've never gotten to this point, I promise you. I've not heard any of you say, I heard my kids arguing. Are we selling or killing the younger brother? That doesn't happen. <laughs> right? We don't have that happening. Thankfully, these brothers realize, hey, listen, we can actually make some money off of this thing if we just sell him rather than killing him. So they just sell him. They just sell Joseph, and he gets shipped off to Egypt. This crazy thing happens with this famine, and eventually all of the brothers and all of their wives come back to Egypt. And Joseph is the one that provides food for all of them. And as a group, they stay there. And when you've already got 12 brothers and all of their wives and they're having kids, they become a nation in Egypt. The problem is, as they become a nation in Egypt, they become a nation of slaves in Egypt. And they get held in Egypt for hundreds of years as slaves. The people of Abraham, the people that are supposed to bless the entire world, are now slaves in Egypt, themselves probably not feeling very blessed, probably not feeling like they're going to be much of a blessing to others. But God promised them they're going to be a nation. And now they're a nation that's just a bunch of slaves. But God said, I promise you, you will bless the world. Abraham, your nation will bless the whole world. And they've got to be looking around thinking, okay, well, part of it became true. We have become a nation. But are we ever going to bless the rest of the world? And then God sends Moses. And Moses shows up, and through an incredible story, Moses and the whole process of kind of taking on Pharaoh and kind of taking on Egypt, when all of that is done, Egypt is not thinking, hey, we feel really blessed. If you know the story, there's all these plagues and there's all, these, all this death that shows up through Moses. Egypt's not feeling really blessed. And if you know the story, then, then he begins to lead the nation out, and he begins to lead, Moses begins to lead the Israelites across the Red Sea, and they head to the Promised Land, and they head to the land of the Canaanites. And as they get to the land of the Canaanites, they have to drive the Canaanites out. And I'm sure the Canaanites are not thinking, you know what, the descendants of Abraham are a true blessing. They're wiping us out. And again, if you read the Old Testament, there's all kinds of violence and all kinds of bloodshed. And a lot of times we're like, how can something so offensive 
be a part of the story of God? How can this, how can this be included? The short answer is this. What offends us was just normal at that point in time. In our culture, in our context, this doesn't make any sense. But at this point in the world, this is how it's going. The other part of the answer is, on this side of Christmas, everything looks different. On the other side of Christmas, the world was a completely different time. It was a completely different culture. And so this nation of Israel moves in, and they begin to establish itself, and they begin to establish laws, and begin to have kings, and they begin to have cities. And they start to grow up as a nation, and as they start to grow up as a nation, they start to think, oh, we got this. And they start to lose sight of who God is, and God's promise, and their commitment to God. And they start to say, we'll just do our own thing, and they start to ignore God. They start to stop ignoring God's direction and God's guidance. And so God's like, okay, if you want to go on your own, I'll kind of step back. If you don't want to live underneath my protection, okay, you have to fend for yourselves. And so in time, the nation starts to get divided, and they start to have people come in and start to try and conquer them. The Assyrians are about to come in and invade. There's about to be this massive chaos. They're about to be invaded as a nation again. They've worked so hard to get to this place, and their world is starting to change, and their position of strength and authority is starting to crumble. And as everything is starting to fall apart, God sends a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah comes to speak on behalf of God, and we have it written down in our Bible. It says this. Isaiah reminds them, God's saying, he says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And when they heard this prophecy, there's a really good chance that they're like, <laughs> that's got to be a joke. Like, how are we going to be a light to the whole world? Like, we can barely light up our own lives. We can, we can barely control things on our own. Nobody's going to be attracted to us. Gentiles, essentially everybody that's not Jewish, they're not going to be looking to us for salvation, God. We can't save ourselves. We're a disaster. How can we be a part of saving the whole world? We can't even keep things together right here. And essentially what God is saying to them and through them again and again and again is that you will be a, late, a nation like no other. You will bless everybody. And then shortly after they hear this prophecy, that you will be a light to the Gentiles, that you will be a salvation to the nations, the Assyrians invade. All of a sudden the Assyrians come in, and, and now all of a sudden they're in 300 year, more years of chaos. And then the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar invade, and they tear down the walls, and they destroy the city, and they flip the whole thing upside down. The temple's destroyed. Their culture is ruined. The best and the brightest, the royal citizens, get carted off into captivity. The economy is in shambles. The military is decimated. And then right in the middle of more chaos, which lasts for about 300 more years, God sends another prophet, a prophet by the name of Malachi. And again, the, prophets, the prophecy of Malachi, as they read it, they're like, what is going on? In a lot of ways, it's sort of like as a parent sometimes when things go wrong for your kids, and you're kind of trying to prop them up. You know, maybe they just failed at something and come along and you're like, hey, it'll work out. Better luck next time. Hang in there. Just set your mind to the things that you're, you know, as a parent, you're trying to talk your kids into something and, and you're hoping it works out for them. And so for the Israelites, in some way, they've got to be hearing this thinking, God, we've got no traction. Nothing is working. There's no reason that we should believe you, God. How do, 
how do we believe that this is going to happen? God, how does this even make sense that in the middle of this difficult time, that God, how would you work? And so here's what Malachi says. God speaks through Malachi and says, but my name is honored by people of other nations from morning till night. Essentially, he's saying, listen, anybody that God is claiming, everybody, my name is going to be great. And again, the Israelites are, God, you've you got to be joking. Nobody's going to look at us and think that our God is worth worshiping. God, people are going to think our God is pathetic. God, we can't even take care of ourselves. God, it looks like you can't take care of us. It feels like there's empty promises. There's all this hype, but nothing seems to be happening. God, how are we even going to be a blessing to others? God, how, are your, how is your name going to be known among the nations? I mean, at this point, it looks like Zeus is going to be great. And if they had seatbelts back then, we would say, buckle your seatbelts because it's about to get worse. Because Alexander the Great is about to move in. And Alexander the Great is going to unify all of the Greek city-states, and he's going to essentially begin to come, become the king of Greece. And he's going to become the king of the nations surrounding this area, and the influencers of the world are all going to fall under Greek rule. And Alexander the Great becomes great. God, are you going to become great? It goes on, it says, All around the world they offer sweet incense and pure offerings in honor of my name, for my name is great among the nations. Says the, Lord of, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Essentially what he's saying is, listen, everywhere people meet, everywhere people live, I will be worshipped. Every place where incense is burned and offering is brought, God is saying, my name will be honored. And again, the people of Judah, how, as they hear this, they've got to be thinking, what is going on? The Assyrians have come in, the Babylonians have come in, the Persians have come in, the Greeks have come in, and just keep wiping them out. And to add insult to injury, at about 63 B.C., Pompey is sent in by Rome to go in and wipe them out. And Pompey becomes known as Pompey the Great. And he comes into Judah, he comes into Galilee, and he starts conquering villages, and he starts conquering towns, and he reaches the walls of Jerusalem. And maybe the walls of Jerusalem will keep Pompey out, but nope, he breaches the walls, and he moves in, and he starts to conquer the city. And eventually all of the area becomes annexed and becomes a part of the Republic of Rome. Tradition tells us that Pompey rides inside of the city. He's riding on his horse, and he goes up to the temple. And he rides his horse up the temple stairs, which is extraordinarily offensive to the Jews to be taking his horse into the temple. And as, um, as Pompey rides his horse into the temple, he's slaughtering priests. And he gets off his horse, and he walks into the temple, and he begins to look around, and he begins to look for what's known as the God Vault. Essentially, in every, ta- in every pagan temple, there would be a god vault. It'd be the place that you would keep all of your idols. It'd be where you'd keep all your representations of God. And, and on festival days, you'd bring those idols out, and you'd roll them out, and you'd worship them. And Pompey is thinking, you know what? If God is so great, if this Jewish God is so amazing, if they would fight for him, he's got to be an amazing thing. And so Pompey walks in, and he opens up the curtain, and there's nothing there. Because God said, you'll have no idols You'll just simply worship who I am. And from a Roman perspective, this is pretty pathetic. From a Roman perspective, this is just a silly little religion. And so the Romans move in and they start to occupy the entire land of Israel. All that we know is the Holy Land, is Galilee, as Judea. The Romans move in. And in this moment, like no other moment before, we see a nation on the verge of collapse. And it looks like God's promise to become a nation happened, 
but it looks like it's about to end. Maybe not all nations would actually be blessed through Abraham. Maybe not all of Israel would become a light to the Gentiles. Maybe God wouldn't be worshipped throughout the whole world. Because nobody's really interested in a God that can't take care of their own people. But this is what makes the Christmas story so remarkable. Because in this moment when things seemed hopeless, when it seemed like God's promise to Abraham was not going to happen, when the nation was on the verge of collapse, it's in that moment. It's after all of these things that have happened. It's in that moment that years later... The writer by the name of Paul, a very well-educated man in Jewish history and Jewish tradition, would speak back to this moment. He would say this in one of his letters. He said, when the set time had fully come. Essentially, what Paul was saying is when God had everything the way that he wanted it. When it looked like the Greek and Roman culture was going to expand and take their common language to everywhere. At this moment, there's a highway system and a port system that is unlike anything the world had ever known. A port system that was reaching all of the populations, major populations of the Mediterranean Rim. There's peace happening around the world unlike it ever happened. Rome was kind of just making peace happen everywhere. And in this moment, God is like, I now have the way that I can take my message and spread it around the planet. And in this moment, God is looking and saying, it looks like everything is hopeless. When it seems like the dream is going to die, when nobody is expecting it to happen, that's when Christmas happens. That's when the story happens that we know where it says, and then God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne, give, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This young teenage girl named Mary, she's just a simple girl. Nobody knows her at this point. And today, everybody knows the name of Mary. This month, people are going to tell the story of Mary all over the world. Everybody knows who this is. And the nation is on the verge of collapse. At this point in the area of Israel, nobody felt like God was close to them. Nobody felt like God was with them. And then Mary is approached by the angel. And she's told, your son is going to be great. He's going to sit on a throne. He's going to have a kingdom that will never end. This is where the Christmas story is keeping and completing the promise that was given to Abraham thousands of years before. This is where God is doing exactly what he promised. Exactly how he promised he would bless the entire world. And what you and I need to see and what you and I need to understand is that the Christmas story is way bigger than we think. It's way bigger than we think. Ultimately, it's God bringing apart his promise. It's God sending Jesus and through his life, and through his teaching, and through his death, and through his resurrection. Ultimately, that all over the world, the light of who Jesus is would begin to spread. And it took this whole process. And tens of thousands of people visit this area of the world every year. And this is where the light began to shine, out of the nation of Israel. And most of us that are part of this service this morning, or listening to this service online... 
Most of us are here because of God's promise to Abraham. Most of us in this room are Gentiles. And the reason that we're here is because of God's promise to Abraham years and years ago. And as we begin to realize that the Christmas story is so much bigger, when we start to look and start to see the story, and begin to see that it's so much more than just the nativity scene, suddenly this remarkable story begins to reveal that the world needs Christmas. That was God's goal from the beginning. That was God's goal when he made that promise to Abraham. That promise to Abraham revealed that the world needs Christmas. When we look at the stories of Jacob and Esau and Joseph and Moses as they do these heroic things, but then as they stumble all over themselves, it reveals that the world needs Christmas. And the nation of Israel, as it struggled to grow and as it fell and as it collapsed, and it revealed that the world needs Christmas. And in your life, and in your circle of friends, and within your family, and within your co-workers, it begins to reveal that the world needs Christmas. And in my life, and in my family, and within my circle of friends, and the people that I interact with, it reveals that the world needs Christmas. And God's promise was to bless the whole world, and to bring salvation. And it's through Jesus. And it's found at Christmas. And you and I now have the chance to extend that light to take that blessing to the rest of the world, to be the continuation of that story. And so this morning, I want you to give some serious thought and some serious to prayer to who it is within your world that needs to hear the story of Christmas. To begin to think about who is it that you need to be inviting that they could come and discover the amazing blessing and the amazing light that's found within the story of Christmas. So this morning I referenced that there's these candles up front. And our challenge for you this morning is to begin to think through and consider who are the individuals in your life that you need to be inviting to come be a part of what's happening around Silver Creek during this next month, to begin to hear the story that reveals that the world needs Christmas, that they might be able to come and have a chance to hear about the promise that they would be able to come and hear the promise of God and how it could be a blessing in their lives. So during this last couple songs, we're going to invite you to come. And, and if there's somebody that God is laying on your heart, or maybe there's a couple people, you come and just, you can light a match on the candle, and the, or off of the candle, and then just light a candle. Just, God, would you help me to have the courage to invite? God, would you help those that I care about, that I want to invite to be a part of this, would you help them to be receptive God, would you be in this process of helping us spread the news that the world needs Christmas? That ultimately they would have a chance to come and, and hear about what Christmas is and God's incredible blessing and light that comes out of that. The band's going to come and they're going to play a song. And every week, we, a couple carols, every week we challenge you to look through these connect cards. And you can look that through and mark your next step. But more than anything, during this next song, during these two songs, we just challenge you and invite you to come up front. Again, take a candle or take a match. Light it off the candle that's there and then light one of the candles that are on the table. There's some sand. You can then put the, can the match in there to kind of extinguish it. But more than anything, this is about you taking an opportunity to acknowledge for yourself and acknowledge before God who it is that, that you're praying for they would have opportunity to come and, and hear the news about who Jesus is and that he came to the world for them. Let's pray.
God, thank you so much for this remarkable story that started so many years ago that ultimately leads to the opportunity for us to hear about your son and that, God, you sent him to be the light of the world and we have the opportunity to extend that light and to extend the message of Christmas. Help us to be courageous. Help us to understand the value of what it is that we're speaking to. In Jesus' name, amen.